It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Religion Today with Martin Tanner, a weekly look at religion and spirituality here at home and around the world. Now, here's your host, Martin Tanner. Welcome. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. Today, an introduction to the Old Testament. I know some people are worried about studying the Old Testament. They think they'll never understand it, and also maybe that it's not so relevant. Most of the stories having happened so, so many thousands of years ago. But both of those things are incorrect. The first one is that with a few simple aids and a little bit of direction, it's not that difficult to understand the Old Testament. And it's as relevant today as it was when it was written. The key stories of the Old Testament have great conflicts and important concepts within them. And direction by God, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we discuss Genesis, but the Old Testament as a whole is just a fabulous document. Don't let it scare you away. So what are some of the techniques that you might use that would be helpful in understanding it? Well, first of all, and This is something that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and other denominations actually now officially suggest that you do, and that is get a modern English translation of the Bible to read alongside your King James Bible. The two that I recommend the very most are the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV, which was translated by a fabulous committee of scholars headed by Bruce Metzger, who has since passed away, of Princeton Theological Seminary. It's close to a word-for-word translation, and it's the one that most scholars use. My personal preference over that particular translation is the contemporary English version, which has a different background, It was produced by a number of scholars who were commissioned by the American Bible Society. And they, with great and diverse backgrounds from Judaism and Christianity, created this wonderful Bible that is completely in today's English, in today's modern English. And I think it is absolutely superb, and it's extremely easy to understand. So beyond that... It's important to know the purpose for which the Bible was written. And the Old Testament has its own unique purpose. The book of Genesis comes from a Greek word that, in essence, means beginnings. And so, if you look in the book of Genesis, you will find that it describes the beginning 
of all kinds of things. The beginning of the heavens and the earth. It talks about the beginning of plants, of animals, of people, of the human race, the beginning of Judaism, the beginning of good and evil, and a whole genre of beginnings even beyond that when you talk about Abraham and the beginnings of the Jewish faith. And so that's the book of Genesis. Now, one of the things that's also important to know is that just as the LDS article of faith says, we believe the Bible would be the Word of God as far as it's translated correctly. Now, translated to me means that it's properly rendered into modern-day English and also that you have something that was originally from God. Not all of Genesis is like that. Much of Genesis, probably all of it, has been worked and reworked and reworked again hundreds of times. How do we know that? Take a look at 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 8 through 10. As the Jewish temple, which has fallen into disrepair because it hasn't been used for many, many, many years, is being refurbished, what happens is that a man who's involved in that process, Hilkiah, who's a high priest, says to a scribe, Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So then Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it, and Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king. And he says, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, meaning the house of the Lord, meaning the temple, meaning Solomon's temple. And they have delivered it unto the hands of the workmen who have had the oversight of the house of the Lord, meaning we've paid the people who have finished refurbishing the temple. And then he goes on to say, moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. Close quote. And, and that is a description of how the Old Testament was found again and then no doubt reworked many, many, many times after that. And that one example alone shows how there are different traditions that have come down to us at different times about the Old Testament. Another point about the Old Testament. Today we have different theories of the universe. There used to be a theory that the earth was at the center of the universe, and then a theory that the sun was at the center of the universe. Much of the ancient world believed one or the other of those things to be true. Today we have a different theory, and that is that there was a big bang and the universe expanded and we're just a, a little teeny planet off out on one of the edges of the Milky Way. 
The ancient Jews at the beginning of Genesis had a different model that they used. Probably our model today is not entirely correct. No doubt the earth at the center of the universe was incorrect, as was the sun at the center, at the center of the universe idea incorrect. But the model sufficed for its purpose at the beginning of Genesis. If you look at Genesis, you will see that it's a story of creation. And in reading it, you will find that when God creates the heaven and the earth, the earth already exists, but it's formless and void, and darkness covers it. And when God creates the heaven and the earth, he uses this pre-existing matter, and that's pretty clear if you look at the Septuagint and the earliest Greek translations of the Bible, and if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and go over Genesis, you will see that there was pre-existing matter. But be that as it may, what happens is that God first commands light to appear, and it does. Then on the second day, God creates what is translated in the contemporary English version and others as a dome, and in the King James Version, as a firmament. Firmament's actually a pretty good translation. It simply means something that is firm, something that is solid. And that's what happened. God created something that was firm. This is the, the Jewish model for the creation of, of the earth. And what was the firm thing? Well, it was the sky. It was this solid thing that held up waters above from waters which were below. It was believed by the ancient Jews that there was a great deal of water below and that if the earth and sky were not in the way, they would rush back up and be like they were before God separated them and that there would be water above the blue sky. And if the sky were removed, the water would come crashing down. That was their thinking. When we come back, more about Genesis, how to understand it and take it for what it is and get the most out of it. I'll be right back. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. Religion Today with Martin Tanner continues on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. We're back. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. If you have a question or comment about this or any other program, feel free to send me an email. Send it to martinstanner at gmail.com. I'll be happy to respond. So before you took our break, I mentioned that the Jewish model for the earth and creation was a little bit flawed because, as we know today, the sky was not something solid, or even the upper edge of the sky is not something solid that holds water out, but that was what the ancient Jews believed. And the third day is is when this solid dome or object in the sky holds the water up. And then you'll notice that on the fourth day, then we get the lights in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. And then on the fifth day, we have this fascinating description of oceans and birds and 
all kinds of things. And, and finally, on the sixth day, you you get um, uh, people and, and a number of other things. Here's here's one of the fascinating points. There is no way, of course, that you have light separated from darkness on the first day before you have the sun, the moon, and the stars created. That somehow doesn't really work. And it's also true that it would be pretty difficult to have days before you had the sun, the moon, and the stars. But the word that's translated day is sort of a generic word that means period of time. So let not your heart be troubled about Genesis and its inaccuracies. This is a model. It it also says, interestingly enough, that you had plants created on the third day before you had the sun, the moon, and the stars, which is also mm, a little bit different. The point is not that somehow this is a perfect scientific textbook for the creation. It's not. The point is to the Jewish mind that God is in charge. God created everything. Everything will ultimately be all right because God is good. God is working for us and for people, and we are the pinnacle of his creation on the last day that he worked, on the sixth day. And that's the Jewish message. They also had a little bit different idea than modern Christians do about Satan or the serpent. We conflate the two together. Satan's the serpent, the serpent's Satan, and vice versa. If you look closely at Genesis chapters 2 and 3, you will find that the serpent tempted Eve, and the serpent was one of the animals that was in the garden. doesn't say that this was the devil. It's just a little bit different model. So when you read things in the book of Genesis, don't worry so much about the details. Worry about the concepts that are being brought forth, that God's in charge of everything. And then evil appears in the form of tempting choices to be made that were improper. That's the important thing. And from there you have other beginnings that come forth. In uh, chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain murders Abel. Evil or murder is, is brought onto the scene. And then you see the descendants of Adam in chapter 5 being involved in very, very difficult and sinful things. Now, a fascinating point here is that you see all these old ages. Clear up to Methuselah, who lived to be 969 years old. And somehow, at the time of the flood, in chapter 6, everything changes. And in chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 3, God says, I won't let the lifetime of people lasts forever. No one's going to live for more than 120 years. That's the gist of what Genesis 6, chapter 3 says. 120 years is about the maximum lifespan. That's a fascinating point. What does it really mean? 
it means that people will not live forever. There is now a limit, and people will get old and will certainly die. That's the, the point, not the exact number. Then we get into chapter 7, where it discusses the flood. And I could go into great lengths about the nature of the flood, whether there was truly a worldwide flood. My personal opinion is that it was some kind of a localized flood. Uh, There are people who believe the earth needed to be covered and baptized. I have often, in response, asked, well, God, what sin did the earth commit that it needed to be baptized? And if it wasn't for baptism uh, for remission of sins, then it certainly wasn't to join some denomination. What would have been the purpose? And uh, it would be pretty difficult to somehow find enough water in the world to cover all of the mountaintops, and certainly Ararat and many of the other mountains uh, pre-existed the flood. We don't ever hear something about the entire mountain springing up after the flood. And, of, of course, we know from geology that Mount Everest, for example, has been around for a long, long, long time. There's not enough water to cover Everest if you got all the ice caps and every other bit of water in the world. So it seems to me this is a localized flood for which there is some evidence. The rest of the information in Genesis is fascinating. It talks about Noah and his family, about Abraham in Egypt. And when you read the story of Abraham in Egypt, keep in mind that there you have this concept that's often described as a coat of many colors. And if you do some looking into that coat of many colors, you will find that it is a coat or a garment of probably many powers, meaning it's likely a priesthood garment. And it was a garment that was given to Joseph by his father, and that's what caused it to be valuable, not the fact that somehow It was a very colorful coat. And from there, we have the coming forth of the idea of the Jewish population, the Jewish um, religion, in the form of Abraham. And Abraham and his beginnings are described in chapters 11, 12, and chapters after that. Abraham is described as a young, youthful guy. In chapter 14, he rescues his nephew Lot by getting what I would call kind of a group of guerrilla warriors to go with him, and they march over incredible distances in a few short days and have a battle and take back Lot. That's a different kind of an Abraham than we often conceive of in our minds, who's this elderly man having a son for the very first time in his old, old age. Abraham is described in chapter 14 as a young, healthy, strong, vigorous, in incredible shape, uh, kind of a guy who has great allegiance to his nephew Lot. And then we have descriptions of Abraham blessing Melchizedek in chapter 14 and about Lord, the Lord's wonderful promise to Abraham in chapter 15, which is at its heart 
a promise of posterity and of family cohesiveness, which is just wonderful and marvelous to me. We're out of time. Join me again next week. I hope this has been a bit helpful for you so that you can understand the New Testament and the Old Testament and all of the Bible a little bit better by not just reading the King James, but also the Contemporary English Version or the New Revised Standard Version. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.